everyone. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. My name is Ashlyn Phelps, and I'm the communications coordinator at High Point Church. This podcast is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. One of the ways we do this is through Engage and Equip Live. Throughout the year, we host this event to get equipped with the skills to serve in ministry. This episode is the recording of Nick's talk during Engage and Equip Live on Monday, September 16th. He starts off with a review of the past several Engage and Equip Live topics, and then moves into the topic of worship in public and private. As always, if you've got a question about what you heard, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. Thanks for listening. You guys have heard me say similar things to this before. Um, but though the Bible has lots of different things in it, there are a number of passages that are summaries of some of the key stuff. And there are basic fundamentals that if you get those down, you can do ministry that is helpful to people. And so you've heard me say about this, that it's not enough to become familiarized with something, right? You have to practice it and review it until you pass boredom to the point of mastery because the only thing you really possess is what you can call up that's already inside you when you need it, right? Otherwise, you'll be you'll not know what to do, and then later on, someone will say, "Oh, you could have done this." And you'll be like, "Oh yeah, I know about that," but you didn't when you needed it. Does that make sense? So one of the things I want to do tonight is to stop for a little bit and to go back to the stuff that we've covered over the last six or seven engages and equips, and remember what we talked about. And I'm actually going to give you a little bit of time to talk about this at your tables because it's extremely important that we master some basic things, okay? So you should have a sheet that looks something like this at your table, right? And um, so these aren't necessarily in the exact order we did them in. I'm sorry, I've been doing a lot of volleyball yelling. That's why my voice will be cracking. Um, So I want to go through these. I'm going to go over a little bit of what we talked about very briefly, and then I'm going to give you just three or four minutes at your table to talk about a couple of these questions. My hope is, is that you'll actually take this home with you and that you'll spend some time, hopefully in private worship, which we'll get to in a little bit, um, where you're actually thinking about these things a little bit more for your own personal life. Because without some personal time of study, thinking, meditation, journaling, however you get things nailed into your spirit, um, these things just don't stick. Does that make sense? So the first is uh, multiculturalism, or or sometimes we call it interculturalism. Hold on, I have my clicker here. There we go. And uh, there's lots of passages I put on this, but the one we've been studying recently in the book of Ephesians is that the body of Christ is not supposed to have any dividing walls. And that's specifically related in Ephesians 2 to different kinds of people, specifically Jews and Gentiles, but it works more broadly than that. By the time you get to the book of Colossians, Paul adds in like four different other kinds of people and includes just men and women. Right, that there's the distinctions between men and women that divide them are supposed to be put away in the death and resurrection of Christ and our salvation in him. Does that make sense? So, um, we are supposed to be a group of people who are drawing everyone. And we'll talk about this more in the Connections group thing. We'll talk about hospitality. But we're supposed to be hospitable and friends and knit together as the body of Christ without dividing walls of hostility to all people. And only then can we exhibit um, the love that will show all people what Jesus is really like. And only then will we have what Ephesians calls the fullness of Christ. That's, that comes together when these things come together. So just take a minute at your table, have a look at these three questions, and you don't have to talk a lot about them, um, but the point is to personally reflect on them and it to personally trigger devotion to this truth 
so that you'll decide what you're going to personally do about it. Does that make sense? So take just a couple minutes and talk a little bit about these. And then the idea is not everybody will talk every time, but hopefully on one of these, you will talk. Okay? So take just a few minutes. Two, one. Um, just a couple of reminders on this. Um, one is remember that in the city of, the city of Madison is one of the few cities in America in which political hatred is 100%. Um, and I'm not saying that as a joke. It's actually like a, like there's studies done in America about like at what percentile different places are in intramural political hatred. Um, how likely is it that if you talk to somebody who's a Republican, they really don't like Democrats and vice versa? And Madison is in the hundredth percentile of intramural dislike. So, and part of your politics has to do with your cultural beliefs. Because political philosophies come from what you believe a human being is and how human beings flourish, how they come together, how they should be separate. All of that's based on your views on, on human beings and human culture. And so your political views tend to flow out of your cultural ideas. And so when we talk about being intercultural, we have to be a, a place where we're striving to not give in to political tribalism ourselves and recognize that there is a culture that Jesus is trying to create it probably incorporates things from lots of different cultures and it, that would include our political cultures. If, if, as a Christian, you can't sit down and find a number of things that the other political views have right, then you're, you're captured, okay? You've been captured by the tribalism of your view. Well, a good book on this, um, and I know this is going to sound very partisan, but it's the only book I know of that does this. Roger Scruton, who is a um, I think he's like a crypto Catholic, but he um, he's a British conservative. He wrote a book called How to Be a Conservative. And the way the book is laid out is he takes every other political view and says, what is right with blank? What is right with environmentalism? What is right with progressivism? What is right with liberalism? What is right with, he takes all these different ideologies and he says, here's what's right about it. And he goes through 25 pages. And he talks about what's right about that view. And then he says, now given my beliefs about how human beings function best and, and order themselves best, I think it's best to, to get these things right this way. But this is what's right about that movement. And so he, he, he spends pages talking about what's right about something before he even starts to disagree with it or talk about different ways of trying to achieve it. And I think that's a, that's a really, now I'm not saying he's all right, that's all right. I'm just saying that's a really great exercise. Does that make sense? In that sense, it's a very Christian exercise. And so Remember that it's, this isn't just race. It definitely includes race. It includes culture, ethnicity, gender. But it also includes things like ideologies in which we can get really deeply captured in tribalistic ways. Okay, so I'm going to put practicing affirmation and affirmation and correction together. Um, a lot of the things that are on here you'll notice are the kinds of things that everybody says are good and then very few human beings actually practice them. Right? Like if you say ask people, is racism bad? They'll be like, yeah. Or is like tribalism bad? They'll be like, yeah. And then you just look at what they click on and it's like, oh yeah, well, but you don't care though. Right. It, and so you see this also with people saying that they believe stuff and they'll tweet the right stuff, but they don't really, they're not even nice to their neighbor. You know what I mean? Um, and so a lot of the things that the gospel talks about in relationship to godliness, it says it doesn't matter. So one of my favorite quotes by GK Chesterton is, G.K. Chesterton, he says, never trust a man who says he loves humanity, but only trust a man who is actually good to his neighbor. Because people who see themselves as moral agents on the basis of abstractions that they believe 
are extremely dangerous people. The people who can actually see the human being living right next to them, walking right beside them, serving them food, right, interacting with them in an organization or an institution, and can see that human being as a human being and as their neighbor, a person who should be the object of their love. That person can live way above their ideology, even if it's completely wrong. Does that make sense? And one of the things that Jesus taught was, it's it's okay to believe bigger things. I mean, obviously Christians believe a very big and complete set of ideas. But what Jesus says also to temper that and to make sure we don't get off course is, listen, love your neighbor as yourself. He has very direct quotes and statements about exactly how we should treat the people who are right next to us. And his argument is implicitly, if you don't treat the people right next to you the way you should, you don't believe the Christian philosophy as an abstraction. Does that make sense? And so one of the ways he says, listen, you can say that you believe the Christian philosophy as an abstraction, but if you don't like those other people, like you just treat them badly, you don't believe the Christian philosophy. Does that make sense? Similarly to affirmation, if you believe that human beings are created in God's image, they are the object of his devoted love. He wants them to become all they can be. His son died for them so they can be saved, that he pours out his spirit in abundance on anybody who would turn to him right? You would think that a human being is the sort of person that should be affirmed, that should be helped. If you believe that sin and death and hell and difficulties and problems are incredibly discouraging, and that the history of humanity is that people get discouraged, and they get broken down, and they quit. And then you'll realize that, yeah, you need to confront people sometimes. You need to teach people sometimes. But what all people need all the time is encouragement. They need to be built up and made stronger, right? The word in the Bible, and many times is to edify, like to build up like a building, right? And so in every area of affirmation or correction, the goal is always the construction of the strength of the other person. Does that make sense? And so the questions I have under practicing affirmation and correction and affirmation are all focused on that essential thing, that we transcend tearing other people down so that we will feel good, to we only correct when something has to be taken out so that something else can be built in its place, right? That's the only reason why we, need to, why we need to criticize people because that thing has to be removed so that something else can be built in there so that the whole house can have structural integrity, right? We don't just criticize people for fun or because we'll feel better if we criticize them, which is the normal fleshly way we naturally will criticize others or we'll affirm them when we see ourselves in them as a way of complimenting ourselves rather than oftentimes what we really should be seeing is something that's very different from ourselves. The, the humblest way to affirm people is to see strengths in other people that you don't have. You know what I mean? And to, and to be like, man, that is so great about you. I'm not like that at all. I need to be more like that. Does that make sense? So start, take a little time to talk about how is the practicing of affirmation going in your life and how is the discipline of only correcting when it's in the direct structural necessity of the other person going? I hope that was, I hope you feel like you're just scratching the surface. Remember, if you look at the, um, some of the scriptures connected with those, there's a, there's a ton to study. In almost every one of Paul's epistles, he's saying, man, I can't wait till I can see you guys the next time so I can just help you, so I can just supply what's lacking in your faith, so I can encourage you. In fact, one of the funny things about the first and second Corinthians, which are two of Paul's more aggressive epistles, is he's, in second Corinthians, second Corinthians, he's like, guys, don't, don't make me come there and like rip you a new one. Like, repent. I'm going to send you this letter. Then you can repent, and then when I get there, we just have a really great time, and I can just encourage you. Don't, don't make me do the, 
the discipline thing. I hate that. I want I want to come there and like and do great stuff, right? Um, you one of the things about practicing affirmation is that with very little theological knowledge, with a little willingness to to listen, you can have an enormous ministry that makes a huge difference. All you got to do is just notice things that are going right or that people are just trying to do, stuff they're in the game on, and just be like, hey, I see that happening. You're getting better at that, that thing you did. People don't do that. But but like you follow the Lord prompting you to do that, and just you kind of point to the Lord. You tell them they're, they're, that's great, and it really, really makes a huge difference, right? Most of us live in denial about how much affirmation we crave because you want to feel like you're strong. I think this is maybe especially true for men. Maybe it's not especially true for men. I'm not, I'm not sure. Seems like it is. But, we, you know, you want to believe you're not weak, so you want to believe you don't need any of these things. So you're like, well, we don't need this stuff, you know? And then you, can, then you get kind of stingy about giving it yourself to other people because like, well, they're not weak either. I bet they think they're strong. They don't need this stuff. But, like, we crave affirmation so much. Um, respect love, knowing that we're connected, people affirming their connection with us or affirming their respect of us. And so just being generous with other people in affirmation can create an enormous ministry for you. And the, and, 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 okay, I was going to say the weirder the better, but that's not really the right, right way to say it. The more unexpected sometimes, the better. Doing things that like people just don't take the time to do, the more sort of specific and thoughtful the more specific the affirmation sometimes, but also sometimes the more thoughtful, like writing handwritten notes or like waiting a week before you tell them about this thing they did a week ago because it makes it more memorable. Or like there's, there's just ways where like, and sometimes I, like I think of things completely out of the thing. I'll like, someone will come to my mind and I'll be like, oh, they did that thing or I really want to thank them that for this thing that they did for me two years ago they've already thanked them for. I actually found, I've actually found that thanking people for things they've done for you in the past that you already thanked them for at a time when they're not about to do something for you again really touches people. And um, so I've gone back and rethanked people for things they did for me 10 years ago or 15 years ago and just be like, you know, when you did that for me, that made so much of a difference for me in those days. And that really touches because they forgot they did it and they're like, they might be having a terrible month. You know what I mean? So the, the ministry of affirmation is in itself a ministry. Do not underestimate how enormous an impact you can have by simply telling people good, true things about themselves. Um, and if you are engaging in a ministry of flattery, we will affirm you for trying to have a ministry of affirmation and then just like slightly correct you in the direction you need to go. Okay. So the next two that I'm going to put together are evangelism, practicing evangelism, and mentoring. In each case, it is seeking to do the ministry of making disciples in the lives of others. Evangelism, the initiation of that ministry, helping them come to the point where you can explicitly invite them to decide to trust in Christ themselves permanently. But then mentoring, that is being a key person in their life who listens to them, who affirms them, who sometimes helps correct them, and who helps them sort through what it means to follow Christ and to be an example of what that means. And so that would include things like, is there anybody who's not a believer who's even on your evangelistic radar? Where are you in that? Remember when, um, some of you may remember back when Nicole and um, Vince did the, uh, the evangelism wheel, the asking questions, invite to something, share the gospel? Like, where are you with the, if there are people on, even on your evangelism radar, where are you with those? Are you asking questions? 
are you inviting them to something or are you to the point where you should share the gospel with them like relatively fully and in terms of mentoring you can just ask yourself this are you the key affirmer encourager or listener in someone's life right um yeah so let's just i'll, I'll just lay it at that and let you guys because the whole point of this is not i don't want to give a whole new teaching i just want to remind you right do you remember this from first peter like right after or sorry second peter right after that section we memorized as a church peter says i know you guys know this and i will never stop reminding you about it right the part of the part of the work of a minister is to say after a while i know you've heard me say this before i will never stop reminding you about this because we have to constantly be stirring ourselves up from the from the burning out and coldness of human the human heart to being stirred back up that's why paul says in romans 12 never be lacking in zeal but keep your spiritual fervor serving the lord do you see how that's a commandment he's commanding you to have a certain kind of feeling which normally we're like you can't do that feelings just happen to you it's like you're there and you just experience them right which is which is partly true but there's a lot of things you can do to have different feelings disciplines and ways of thinking and friendships and actions and getting sleep at night like there's a lot of stuff that you can do right and there's a lot of stuff that you can do to stir up your spiritual fervor to serve the lord right and one of those is reminding yourself how important these things are what you've been called to how much good can be done through them and then deciding how you are next going to act in this direction so talk about that for a few minutes on this subject of evangelism and mentoring all right the last two things we're going to talk about are prayer that is specifically praying for people and public and private worship when the staff and elders were working together on our strategic plan for the next five years or so one of the we worked through a bunch of different things and then at one point we said okay wait one of the things that's, that's missing here is something like directing our attention to god we had all kinds of things about like like starting new ministries and sending out people trained and like doing all kinds of stuff right and and but we we're like okay wait if we don't get people to point their attention to god then we will be a christian philosophy organization teaching a culture of prudence and self-control rooted in traditional morality with a thin veneer of a divine being who is essentially a deist deistic kind of distant god and jesus will be like our big brother who we should be like that's i mean that's what it'll look like unless we honest to god help people turn their attention to god cause people who are mentoring to turn to god for help rather than just us and um start from a place of worship and what worship creates in the human heart right one of those things in having a ministry is doing the primary act of directing people's attention to god which is to pray when somebody shares a need or talks about something that's important to them or something like that where it seems like they want help instead of saying well i can help you here are my wise words to say that sounds really important let's pray about this right now right praying with another person directly not going away and praying for them which is fine and perfectly christian but one of the things that people do especially if they're just they're a little uptight or they're a little shy or something like that is they'll say i'll pray for you and then they just assume they're gonna and sometimes they forget sometimes they really do it but they don't pray right then and the the impact of it of praying right then is much much stronger and i'm not saying in like the heavenly realm i'm saying just like functionally and saying well you just said you wanted prayer 
let's pretend you weren't just being sentimental. Let's pretend you wanted to really call on God and ask for help because you really believe God is there. He listens to prayers. Let's do it right now. Let's do that right now. Because that person might say they want, a lot of times when people ask other people for prayer, sometimes it's because they understand that God has chosen in his providence to listen to prayer in his actions and to combine the two in a mysterious way to involve us in his providence, which we don't completely understand, but which is pretty amazing, okay? Sometimes it's because they don't just don't know how to pray for themselves. They, they won't pray for themselves. They don't know what to do. They just think, well, if there's a God, it'd be great if somebody said something to him. And then they want you to just go do that somewhere while they try to figure things out themselves. And so what you want to do is you be like, let's you and I pray right now. And like pull them into the directing one's attention to God and bring them into the discomfort of opening your heart up before God and feeling like you're really doing that. Does that make sense? And so if you're doing ministry with other people, one of the things that you want to do pretty regularly is say when they exhibit a need— the minute you want to say some a counsel something or what, just stop your mouth and say instead, let's pray about that right now. And then don't pray that long. Just say, let's pray. And you put your hand on their shoulder or whatever. You'd be like, let's pray. And then you say, Lord. And then you just say, like, you repeat what they just said verbatim. And then say, God, will you please help? Will you please help in a way that, like, we can both see? Will you do it soon? And will you draw both of us closer to you because not only will you work in our lives, but you're going to develop us as your followers and you're going to show us that you care or something like that. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't have to be sexy. Remember um, what at the end of Ephesians, Paul says, pray all the time with all kinds of prayers. Like he's intentionally trying to be like, look, basically all prayers stink. Okay. I mean, I mean, think about, I mean, God is the divine being who is infinitely complex. nothing you could say will ever be interesting to him, like, in terms of its content. You're never going to be like, God, listen to this syllogism I came up with, or I made this poem for you. Like, that's never going to work, right? The only reason what you say isn't stupid is because he cares. That's it, right? And so, like, he just cares. And so you're like, well, God, please help us out. And he'll be like, I got you. You know, like, it doesn't really have to be, sometimes it's helpful to be theological and so that you understand and are rehearsing on what basis you come to God and what's going on. But sometimes you just got to be like, okay, God, I don't know how to pray for this one, but can you please help a lot? Like, really a lot. That would be awesome. I'm really banking on that Ephesians 6, all kinds of prayers thing right now. Amen. You know what I mean? Like, you just got to do that. And, like, people really respect that. In fact, in the Alpha Course, they teach to pray. Like, when you pray in the Alpha Course, which is designed for non-Christians to be part of it, he said, Dickie Gumbel used to say, what you do is you want to pray so that the non-Christian who listens to you pray thinks, man, I could have prayed better than that. <laughs> That's what you want. His reaction to be, because in three weeks, you're going to ask him to pray. Right? So, um, I'm, I'm not going to give you discussion time on this because I want to get to public and private worship. But, I just am, I always want to encourage people who want to have any kind of ministry. Basically, somebody tells you something's wrong, what do you do? You say, let's pray right now, and then what do you do? Pray, and then affirm them. <laughs> you know? And then if, you, if, you, if you're ready for this, you'll be like, then you say, is there any way I could be supportive to you? But then they might say yes. So, careful. All right. A couple things on public and private worship. 
um, because there's a lot of misunderstanding about this within evangelical or, or Christian Bible-believing circles. And um, I want to clear some of it up. Um, so uh, hopefully you realize and recognize because you actually listened to the sermons that I preached that the book of Ephesians begins with worship. And essentially the first four, three and a half chapters of Ephesians are an argument for why we can be thankful towards God, joyful in him and worshiping him explicitly every moment for all that he's done for us. Like the first line in verse three, chapter one is, blessed be God or let God be praised because he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Like every blessing that you can be blessed with, basically, he's blessed us with, right? And then the whole rest of the book, he argues that until the second half of chapter four where he says, now let's apply this, right? This is also true where like in Pentecost, the disciples are praying and they're seeking God when Pentecost breaks out. You can also see in the longest book of the Bible is a book of praise songs or songs of worship. You can also see like even in some of the places where there are things where New Testament scholars call them doxologies, which a doxology is basically like some philosopher theologian is writing along as complex as possible. And then they go, man, don't you see how amazing God is? Right? A good example of this is in Romans, at the end of Romans 11, where Romans 11 is ex an extremely thick theological section about how God has, in his providence, allowed all people to be consigned over to damnation and the slavery of sin at different points in human history so that through the concatenation of many circumstances and providences, he would bind one group of people over to sin so that another could be saved and then the other so that the other one could be saved in a way that we don't completely understand in such a way as that he could be glorified and that we could be drawn to him in ways that are amazing. And after all of that, he goes, oh, the depths of the riches. He, so he, he just kind of erupts into a worship song. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or been his counselor and who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And then Romans 12 starts with, therefore. Why? Because so dwelling on the beauty and glory of God in his being and in his actions, such that it would lead you to that kind of praise, is precisely the grounding in attitude and motivation to start to talk about what godliness looks like in our behavior. Right? Because in this context, doctrine or truth precedes its emotional effect of devotion and conviction, which then leads into the, its application for how we would then live to show that our emotions and our convictions are real, right? So um, if you work through this as systematically as is possible, I guess, um, you'll come away with a few things. One is that all Christians are called to worship in the stirring up of worship in both public and private, meaning in the gathered church in the body of Christ and by themselves, okay? Now, um, you could say public worship is the corporate worship of the gathered body of Christ being equipped and mutually using the gifts to build each other up. Hopefully you already know what that all means because you've listened to sermons in Ephesians. Okay? Private worship would be praying and seeking God by ourselves in acts of personal devotion supported by our own gifts and godliness. Hopefully you always already see how I'm setting this up to make corporate worship primary. Okay? So there's a couple of the applications of this that I think are important. The first is, um, worshiping God must be must be primary and central to your life of devotion. No person who doesn't who exists without a demeanor of thankfulness and joy towards God is going to have a life of devotion, and then therefore a life of godliness. 
right? Transformation does not proceed from a heart that is not devoted to God, seeing God as one who we should be profoundly thankful to rather than complaining against, and joyful in. Not only is that explicitly said a number of times in the Bible, but you see the people of God in the Old Testament constantly going awry when they first start by complaining. The minute they reframed what God was doing or hadn't done for them in a way in which it led to complaint rather than thankfulness, they started to just not do what he said and not be devoted to him. Let's go back to Egypt. Let's do whatever we want. So because of that, worship is fundamental to all of the motivational structures that will strengthen us and also to put us in a place where we want to obey God. The second thing is, is that worshiping God has to therefore be primary and central to the life of the devotion of anybody you minister to. In one sense, what you are always trying to invoke in anybody that you have a ministry with is to get them to the point of worship. By any means, not by any means necessary, but by any means that works in relationship to their temperament. For some, it will be to give them more doctrine. For some, it will be to tell them more things that relate to their devotion. For others, it will be to do things in line with the gospel that stir them up through those kinds of actions. Third, worship is the discipline that leads to thankfulness and forgiveness, which leads to freedom and joy. Worship precedes two of the most fundamental works of godliness that God demands from us so that we can be free. Right? You have to be thankful to be free of all of your complaining, and you have to be able to forgive in order to be free of all your resentments. Okay? And only an understanding of who God is, that he has freely forgiven you, that he has given you all things, can lead you to a level of thankfulness and a receiving of his forgiveness that you can really forgive others and that you can really be thankful to God to be thankful for whatever lot in life that you possess. And in that position of thankfulness and forgiveness, you can then experience freedom and joy, which is the only motivational place in which you will have the strength to pursue godliness and to enjoy it and to be what you were created to be and redeemed to be. Now, Okay, so this is the thing that I want to make sure we clear up. Fourth, corporate worship is to be preferred, but private worship is not to be neglected. Here's what I mean by that. In the Bible, virtually all of the worship referred to is corporate worship. Yes, there are a couple of verses where Jesus says, go into your prayer closet and pray there where nobody sees you and God will hear your prayer. That's true. It does say that. It specifically is in contrast to praying vain and showy prayers that are completely inauthentic publicly as a religious leader. So if you, if you read that verse in context, the main focus is not the, the sheer privacy of worship and that that's to be preferred, but that private authenticity is to be much preferred over public showiness and hypocrisy. But when it comes to whether or not worshiping together is to be preferred for our spiritual growth and glorification of God to worshiping alone, throughout Scripture, the primacy is put on worshiping together. And part of the reason for that is, is that we come together to nourish and help each other in the work of ministry and acts of worship. So you can be like, well, Nick, I have wonderful quiet times, and I have this, like, the time, my times of private worship are so much better than your stupid sermons and our, even our worship services, but I go because I'm supposed to, and, you know, I give semi-annually. And, like, my response to that is this. Fine. But that's not really the point. The point is, is that there are other people. There are wayward people. There are people with not a lot of gifting. 
There are broken people, ignorant people, and immature people, and your gifts in the body of Christ are meant to mend them together into the body of Christ and support and help them. And they will also minister to your pride. Right? And it's, God has given the whole body of Christ what it requires to do all of its work. And the, the individual members are not supposed to be self-sufficient. And so some of us have really great quiet times. I have great quiet times. I also have like 120 graduate hours in Bible study. Like if I don't have great quiet times, there's something like seriously wrong with me. Okay? But like, th- there's some people that like they have trouble reading like three minutes together. You know what I mean? And some, some people, they try really hard. Some people literally just don't read so good, right? Like, that's why Zoolander had to build that whole school. But, like, people—is that good, Laura? Sorry. But, like, people come together to nourish each other. Like, I can't—I don't have—I don't play worship music when I have my quiet types because I'm pretty terrible at it, right? I need Nicole to help me with that, right? And so— what you need to realize is that in the reason the Bible puts a primacy on corporate worship, even just two people, two or three people, the reason the Bible puts a primacy on that is because whenever you get more people together, you have a multiplicity of spiritual giftings, of needs, and of offerings so that, A, God can be glorified, but there can be interpersonal love, which is part of how we demonstrate our devotion to God. Does that make sense? and demonstrate our obedience. So it's really important to recognize that um, any Christian that you are mentoring or ministering to or are yourself who tends to think that church kind of stinks, church always stinks, okay? Like if you compare church with heaven, it's always going to stink. It's never not stunk, okay? I, like, I, got, I became a pastor because I was so angry about how bad my church was. That's literally the, like the, the, the reason God used to help me go into ministry, I was like, this is so bad. This shouldn't be this bad, right? Church always thinks that, and like, that's how you feel. You're like, Nick, this church is pretty bad. I know, right? Maybe you should go into ministry. But the point is, <laughs> the point is this side of heaven, it's, yeah, it's going to be bad. It, but that's not the point, really. The point is, is that it is the gathering of the body of Christ, whereby we're knit together in our Christ's fullness together, mutually using our gifts to build each other up so that we can grow into the fullness of Christ. That's what it's about. It's not supposed to be cool. It's not supposed to be whatever else. And it's not even supposed to be that good. Because it's supposed to be just like real people really loving Jesus and loving each other. And sometimes the showier it gets or the sexier it gets or the more expensive it gets or the nicer facilities that we have, that in some ways that overshadows the organic realness of what it's supposed to look like for people to just love each other and love Jesus a lot. Does that make sense? The early church didn't need that stuff. Like, they got together around fires. You know what I'm saying? Okay. So I'm going to skip this because we need to get on to the next thing. But it's important to recognize. Here's, here's what I want you to recognize. In ministry, one of the things that you have to um, impart to people is some kind of theology of the importance of the local church, of worshiping together, of the unity of believers, of what the Bible calls fellowship that we sometimes now call community and how that is actually primary to personal spiritual devotion. But that is not meant to undermine in any way the Bible's affirmation of personal practices of spiritual devotion, of you praying by yourself, of you reading the scriptures by yourself, of you, like, meditating on stuff and thinking about what it means, of you memorizing scriptures and so on. Does that make sense? 
That's all really important. And in some ways, that personal devotion is then feeds back into corporate worship. The more alive we are as fed by some of these personal times of worship, the more energy and devotion we bring to corporate worship, right? But at the same time, some people come in dead, and they get a huge lift from the corporate worship so that when they go out to their personal devotion that, or their personal lives, they're very much helped and stoked by that. It's a, it's a circular and cyclical process in which we nourish one another. Does that make sense? And so one of the, one of the assumptions of our age, the sort of personalism of our age, that the only thing authentic is your internal personal feelings and you should just attend to those yourself, it's a complete heresy. And it's a complete misunderstanding of what a human being is. It's a, what's it's called a false anthropology. It's just a false understanding of humanity. We, we are meant, we are incredibly influenced by each other. And we are meant to be together to influence each other. And we will do it for the good if we do it lovingly and humbly. Does that make sense? And that worship is primary in the Bible. And personal devotion or personal worship, which is affirmed in the Bible, it is important, and you should do it, especially with all the advantages you have of being able to read and buy a Bible and stuff. You, there's no excuse for us not to have some times of personal devotion. But there are some Christians who literally feel like they're a terrible person if they didn't read their Bible today. Right? That's not why you're a terrible person. <laughs> right? You just, you, I mean, you're missing out on what's optimal. It's, reading the Bible is extremely nourishing. It's like skipping a meal. It's not morally wrong. It's just you can only skip so many meals and be healthy. You know what I mean? It's, it's functional. Does that make sense? What the Bible explicitly—the Bible nowhere says you need to read the Bible every day. What the Bible does say is you should never neglect the meeting together of other believers. It does say that. And what does it say in the verse right after? So that you can encourage or affirm one another and build them up and all the more, the closer we get to Christ's return. Does that make sense? All right, let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd help us as a people in an age where people don't want to join anything. We hate institutions. We want to listen to just our own feelings. In an age of romanticism that we think is some kind of new thing, um, would you help us recognize the beauty of your institution, that you instituted the church? And though it's an organic people, though it's a body of Christ, though we are brothers and sisters, and though in many ways it should be seen in an in informal organic unity, it is also something you instituted and called us into, and in that when we neglect it, we neglect the weak, and we neglect the poor, and we neglect the needy, and we neglect the broken, and that we don't dare do such a thing. We pray that you would make this, this body of Christ here at High Point Church, us as a family together, the kind of fullness in you that we're meant to be, and we pray that it would encourage private worship as well. And that you would receive much worship and there would be great and prevailing prayer and that we would be affirmers of each other. That we would be driven forth in evangelism and in mentoring and in caring for other people. And that in that we would do it for and towards all people in a way that is deeply intercultural and that even divisions like p the political divisions and racial divisions and other kinds of divisions we see in our city, that we would transcend them because of a greater culture of Christ in your gathered body, rooted in worship. We pray in Christ's name. listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. 
If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.